Hello, sexy nerds of the Nerd Imperium. Welcome to this week's episode of the Currently Nerdy Podcast. We are your inner conclave of nerdum. My name is Diz, and I am your pop culture and sports nerd, Ali. And I am Ali, your classic nerd, and I have a really cool and distinct privilege of introducing our guest for this week. Uh, we got a big, we got a big person. We got a get. exciting get. We've got Dr. Noura Sadiq, who's a political scientist and postdoc at Princeton School of Public Affairs. Uh, she's a scholar of race, ethnicity, and politics, studying representation and working with the new American leaders, studying the shifting demographics in our government, and a longtime friend of Diz and I. For those of you who have been fans, my sister of the podcast, from another Yeah, you've heard you've heard of Noura before. She's a, a, a beloved figure in our lives, and we talk about her very frequently. So welcome. Welcome to you, Nora. We're so super excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm so stoked to be on. It's a it's a long time coming. We've been I talking know. about. We've built up your reputation for three years, <laughs> <laughs> and now people have got a chance I'm so to excited. actually meet you and, and chat with you. First, let's check in to see how you're doing. How are you holding up through this crazy COVID time? I'm doing great, and um, I'm learning how to use technology better because <laughs> of it, which you both have pushed me for years to fix. But yes. COVID is actually making me fix the problem listen you you know how to code i like i i barely know this stuff so you in terms of technology you're leagues ahead of me leagues ahead of me that's not not saying much ali like if you give a (laughs) monkey a typewriter he's leagues ahead of you it's true you know ali got the new iphone before i did and that's when i got startled i was like ali has a newer phone than me i went to i went to sprint the next week and i fixed the problem (laughs) it it, it helps when you're it helps when your cousin is in tech and makes sure that like all right come on you you've had your phone for five years but i but then he held his phone and he's like i don't know how to take a picture i was like this is on brand (laughs) (laughs) no that that first few weeks i gotta be real with you especially like because it doesn't have a home button right so you have to get used to the swiping up thingy yeah oh god i hated it i hated it i didn't i was unlocking i was unlocking i was doing all sorts of things i didn't know what the fuck was going on it was driving me nuts i i wish i took a video of you because i think we we Mm. were with our friend kais at uncle bobby's bookstore and (laughs) you're just sitting there swiping and you're like fuck is this and you're just like swiping trying to open and i was like what he's fighting his phone and i don't you know it was a disaster so we're we're excited to have you here because uh in addition to being a really cool person you're also doing really really interesting work as a political scientist and we here at currently nerdy like to fancy ourselves as being current and nerdy hence the name uh we do have a, a in addition to talking about comic books and whatnot we do have a very clear intellectual kind of turn we do have a slight intellectual, you Whose know, technology messed up and put on the Wu Tang Clan. I'm assuming not. <laughs> no, I definitely don't. No Wu Tang. I love Wu Tang, but everything in my house is muted. Um, but so, so you, we have a very clear intellectual bias too. We're interested in kind of the big conversations that are happening in America, and Nora yeah. is right in the center of it. So first, let's just kind of start off with a really basic question. Um, of asking what is the new American leaders and what do they kind of do? New American leaders is a really incredible organization um, that is run by women of colors. It was started by Sayuba Jwani. And basically um, it was started to encourage first and second generation immigrants to run for office. So Mm -hmm. they run training programs that are targeted to 
um, pu- um, training and building a pipeline for first and second generation immigrants to run for elected office. They focus a lot on state legislators and local office, but um, they've worked and have relationships with folks that we know, like, for example, Rashida Tlaib from the squad is a dear friend of the organization. So, like, okay. they um, have been around for quite some time. So there's a lot of names that you've probably heard right. that, um, you know, that are affiliated with them. Like, the, like some of the first um, uh, African legislators, um, Somali women that ran for mm-hmm. um, city office in Missouri, for example, yes. um, now helped train. So the new Amer- like the concept of new American is something that that's very near and dear to everyone here on the podcast, yeah, right? because yeah. it defines us. And you were part of uh, the work that you do there. You were part of a major study where you all examined at the state level the actual participation of new Americans and of minorities more broadly, and and put out this phenomenal study, which was then picked up by CNN. And there's this like. First of all, just from a purely aesthetic perspective, the study is gorgeous. Oh, thank you. <laughs> the graphics are great. It's very easy to read. It's very straightforward. I was talking. I was talking to my colleagues about. It. I was like, we don't do shit like this in history. <laughs> <laughs> We're putting out like these dry ass articles, you yeah. know, that, that go to Goddamn. International Journal of Middle Eastern Studies and stuff. And it's like three with people your read it, tweed right? Jackets. Yeah, no, oh, yeah. We're, we historians have no idea what to do with graphics. So this was this was really great. But the study revealed like some pretty alarming things that I, I mean we kind of knew at the at some level but like just seeing the numbers were so stark um so this study was was huge how long were you involved in it uh and what were kind of the kind of key findings we started this project about april 2019 and then we started data collection may mm-hmm. may 2019 so it's about been a, it's been about 12 to 14 months in the making mm-hmm. Um, it's a pretty large endeavor. There are 7,383 state legislators oh, wow. across the 50 states. And why do state legislators matter? Like all the conversations we've had about COVID budgets, about, um, the you know, there's all this defunding the police, right? Yep. Police budgets are local. They're run by counties. Yeah. Federal Highway Patrol is state legislators. State legislators can kind of shift a lot of that's uh, local level politics is not federal, right? How much ICE can invade into different states yes. is stuff that our politicians locally work on. So having folks that look like the communities that are vulnerable really matters. So we, we d- dug into the data of the 7,383. We expected to see some level of participation. Now, let's keep in mind, if you do a pie of America... Yeah. 25.7% of Americans are new Americans. Wow. So first and second generation immigrants literally make up a quarter yeah. of... So there's a lot of us that are new and are here. But when you look at how we're represented in state legislators, we only make up 3.5% of state legislators. So there are only 258 new Americans in total out of the 7,383 state legislators. So that stark disparity is like is wild. That is crazy. It's also like when, you, when you're thinking about it, like we go 23%, they don't quite understand that we're talking about like millions of people. Exactly. That's a lot. That is a lot of people. And like I said, if by the definition of new Americans, that's me. 
Mm-hmm. That's Diz. That's all of us here, it's right? All it's, of us here. The New Americans is like it's. It includes a people who may not think of themselves as New Americans, but are definitely part of that. Group. Exactly, because second yeah. generation is like your parent, your mom or dad. Yep. If either of them is immigrant. Like, Diz, are you first or second generation? Second generation means my parents moved here, right? Yeah. And I was born here? Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm second generation. That's that's where I always get confused. I always assumed I was first generation because I was the first generation to be born in America. And I thought my parents were considered refugees or immigrants. Mm. So I think that's like, a. I guess I thought that because it was a form of othering my parents to an mm. extent, right? Because they're not considered Americans, whereas, like, the way you're breaking it down here, them being first-generation American, that makes more sense. It's more inclusive, right? Yeah. And yeah. saying that they're a new American. And yeah. even myself, yeah. I, I, I think both Ali and I are second-generation. Yep. yep. Ali, you yep. were born in the U.S.? I was born in the U.S., oh, yeah. Oh, you yeah, surprising little detail about little old Ali. You have, Alex. like, this old ancient soul that I think has... I'm well, actually from Sumeria. There if you it, go. Look, look, if it helps... They, they I believe a, it. They opened a jar, and I just kind of sprang out. Like a genie in a lamp, and then Ali appeared. If it helps, Ali took uh, this vessel in Alexandria, Virginia, sometime in the 80s, during the one fl- of the 12 months. When people find out that I'm from uh, Virginia, they, get, they actually get very shocked. They go, it's, Virginia. It's so um, basic. And they go, oh, all the places me? in America, <laughs> you're from Virginia? And I'm like, yes, from Virginia. I know damn well Toledo, Ohio, Ohio is being called Virginia basic. <laughs> Listen, we're, we, never, we never were a state that um, advocated for slavery. <laughs> so um, we up there. in the north had the Underground Railroad. So I'm gonna use that card. Well, my what school just Diz? changed. My school just changed its name to John R. Lewis High School, baby. From, What's from up? what? From what? From a uh, Bruce Lee <laughs> High School. <laughs> from, from She's from got Ra- a PhD, Diz. You're not gonna match wits with her. <laughs> Come on, dude. Listen, Virginia's not basic. It's a racist state, but it's not a basic state. <laughs> You're true, true. That goes to New Jersey. Props to New Jersey, the state I can look at from my window and I refuse to live in. <laughs> so you can thank them for saving you. Yeah, I mean, too funny. Yeah, New Jersey's second fiddle to both New York and Pennsylvania. That's pretty bad. And they're also the one of the worst in the report. So like... Oh. To bring them back to this, 17.8% of New Jersey's voting age population are ne- are first-generation citizens. And they only make up 3% of the state legislature. Oh, wow. 3%. Like, they're one of the worst offenders. Them in Connecticut. Connecticut, 10% of their voting age population are first-generation. I'm not even talking second-gen, just first-gen, 10%. Only uh-huh. 1% of their state legislature um, includes new Americans. Wow. Um, so... When you're doing the study, like first off, oh, besides you being a new American, what was the other reason of like doing it? Like, what was the impulse to do the study? Well, people are wondering, like, what is the push? You know, like, what is it like? In order to know like why this matters and what does representation look like, we actually yeah. need to know what's going on on the ground. Like, if we yeah. want to know, like, how do we make this better? We need to know, like, what is. What does the landscape look like? What What is it that we're working with? When we're asking new Americans, like, you should run for office, they're looking around like, like, oh, maybe there's a lot of us and I don't need to do it. 
But then when we get an understanding of what it looks like, then we can make then we can make recommendations for how, you know, the Democratic Party or um, uh, like, you know, like all these different political parties, they need to like fix. They need to be inclusive and make mm-hmm. room. And they're not. I think both the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, the Greens, all the political like the Social Democrats, whomever. They need to make room mm-hmm. for new Americans to not only join the parties, but to like put them in the forefront to run for office. And I don't think they have an understanding of how abysmal the numbers are. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that really struck out to me, and again, this is if you haven't seen this report, we're going to put it up on on our social medias. You've got to check it out. Really, you can get through it really quickly. And like the numbers are are startling and really important. One of the key findings that just kind of threw me for a loop was the fact that 0.5 percent Black Americans. Yeah. Right? Like that. Like that number to me is just like it's one of those things where you just go, that can't be a real number. Yeah. But it is, right? And 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 what you rightly have pointed out here is that this is at the state level. Politics is local. Politics yeah. is happening at the state level. Your your school budgets, your curriculums, your you know the as you you know policing, all of that is happening at the local and the state level. And if you're at the moment, if you're if you have a government that doesn't look like the people, that says something. Right. I mean, this reminds me of uh, when I first went to the to UCI. We did this uh, TA training. Uh-huh. Right? It was like, and part of it involved like, this is the demographic of your students. You know that type of bullshit. Mm-hmm. And they they very openly admitted. They said this is how it looked like before uh, when we had affirmative action. Right. Wow. Because California got rid of it, and the UCs completely eliminated it. Yeah. And they had something like three percent black population for students. When they eliminated affirmative action, it dropped to like 0.05. That's and ridiculous. Like, what even is that, right? And we're looking at it here too. 0.5% black Americans in politics, in the state legislature. That's alarming, right? Because people talk about identity politics and they have no fucking clue what that actually means, right? This right here is what it, what it, the consequences of not knowing mm-hmm. what identity politics is. You end up with a body that does not represent both in its makeup, but then also in what its intent is, what, what the way it votes, who's included, who's at the table. It doesn't represent the actual state body. Yeah. So what do you do with information like that when you find out that you've got this, this you know, you've got the hard facts this state body does not look like the people that it's supposed to represent. Is there a way to then advocate or recommend or use this information in order to make change? Absolutely. I think that's where, um, because if you think about a place like Minneapolis, where yeah. um, like the resurgence of the protests happened after the death of George Floyd, um, may he rest in peace, that's a site of black immigrants. There's yeah. so many... Somalis and even like East, um, like West Africans that live there, that were, and their generation were involved in the organizing. Ilhan Omar is from mm-hmm. there. She's one of the only black immigrants, if not the only black new American in U.S. Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, and what this does is this pushes new American leaders to target and work with local communities to and and be like, hey, we need you to show up to our trainings. It pushes big foundations like the ford foundation to be like hey when you're talking about immigrants stop using the word generally 
and focus in on black immigrants, focus mm-hmm. in on sub-Saharan Africans, focus on, on Caribbeans. Caribbean Americans do a better job than sub-Saharan Africans. Um, new Americans that are originally from sub-Saharan Africa, they're the ones that are doing the worst in terms of political representation. Mm-hmm. And But then... But they are like one of the most viable and thriving communities in Houston, Texas and New Jersey. And so they have a lot of they invest a lot into the fabric of American society, but their political voices aren't being heard. Yeah. And so they this information, New American Leaders itself tries to push and encourage folks to work. And I think what we're trying to do is also collaborate or like get this information out so community organizations see the need and push their members to think about right if you haven't thought about running for office and you have an auntie or uncle that's part of this community i would say talk to them have them contact me let's get them in a training like these yeah. trainings are really important they're still happening and we need people to run for office and this the, is at the, the local level the or local j- level the state level yeah, yeah. All, all again all good pol- all politics all change is happening at the state and local level yeah right like because well, that's, that's what happens first that's what and, happened in virginia right like yep. back in like 2017 2018 yep. where like the yep. whole state shifted and then yeah they, they lo- local level same thing with the civil rights civil rights started local right like uh-huh. it's, it's about changing county laws and then changing state laws and then from then national the na- the nation almost always goes the way of the states do right like you got to win those states first and you got to change the, the makeup of the states but some of the things that like that that really kind of struck is that and why this this is such a crucial study is that it really breaks through the fog around the question of identity politics because i think something that the right has done really good job at is rebranding right like that's the mm-hmm. one thing the right does good right is like yeah or that they do really well is they know how to rebrand things right they they rebranded uh you know political uh politically correct speech right uh, uh cancel culture uh all like all the identity politics they're really good at that and one of the things they did with identity politics is they made it seem like it was just about tribalism that it was just about, oh, we were already in a post-racial society, Obama's been elected, identity <laughs> politics is regressive, right? Then you've got a study like this that just completely f- brushes through the, f- the fog. It's like the sun shining through it goes, all the things you said about identity politics, come and take a look at these numbers. Because let me tell you, and please tell me if I re- I'm reading this wrong, there's states that don't even have any representation when it comes to new america that's correct i was looking at mississippi and south carolina i'm looking at you south carolina like really see right really here's the thing that throws me off right because when i think of famous south carolinans right the only one i could think of is aziz ansari there's a huge indian population in south carolina bobby jindal's from south carolina yep is he really i know he's mississippi uh, louisiana oh louisiana oh. that's right that's nikki right. haley's from south carolina that's there you go. right there yeah that's a different republican but the, other, the other republican the indian republican. who changed her name <laughs> yeah there's nine states there's nine states that have zero nine representation states. Oh my God. including missouri which also like is a huge yeah, arab and indian population in st louis my god that, like that's one of those things where you just look at and you go you marvel at it because you go how is that even possible in 2020 yeah how is it possible that a state of that size that many millions of people doesn't have anyone there to represent the interests of those people now the next question is like once you've got this data what's the next project right because this is huge hopefully there's a break involved somewhere (laughs) some rest because this is a lot of months of work 
right? This is yeah. this is a lot of months of work. But where do you go next? Once you identify, you go, okay, here we've got this very clear problem. There, the, there are not enough new American representatives in the state legislature. Where does the study go next? What do you study next? What do you, uh, you know, hope to build on from this? Because one of the great things about projects like these is that they aren't just studies you're building many archives i'm using the history term here right but other researchers are also going to be plugging into this and using this data and trying to figure out what it means more broadly for american politics yeah i think it's a couple things one um one of the cool things about the study is that we really spent time trying to understand commonly forgotten underrepresented groups so black Mm. immigrants and also middle folks that are middle eastern north african yeah um this is one of the first, if not the first, I'm not sure. There might be a report I don't know about out there that actually identifies who's Middle Eastern, North African. We don't let it slide. They're always categorized as white. So yes. there's something to think about in terms of like, okay, what does Arab American representation look like? Right, what does right. Afghan representation look like? What does North African representation look like in politics? So that's one piece that like people can draw and we can do more work on. And the other is, okay, we know we've got these folks in office. What kind of bills are they introducing in the state legislative floor? Mm. What are they voting, affirming? What are they voting against? Specifically in the area of um, social issues like criminal justice reform, health care, immigration, things that new Americans on average seem to have um, interest in. And, um, and that's a broad generalization, but I think that for me, that's where my question is. Like, is is uh, there has been research on on this for the other groups with African Americans mm-hmm. in terms of like, okay, what kind of bills are they introducing, and what are they voting on? And I think that's a question that we don't really have a clear understanding of when it comes to new Americans. So I think that's a really cool next step to think about. Okay, especially in a place like California that has like a almost equitable representation of new Americans in state mm-hmm. legislature. Just focusing in on a case like California to see what impact they have um, would be interesting. This is fascinating because you, the, we really don't understand the voting habits, right? Like, yeah. Because once you get into office, that's great, but that literally is the first step. Yeah. yeah. The next step is what do you do with that? Exactly. Right? It, are new Americans voting about things like immigration, right? Mm-hmm. Are they voting about ICE? Exactly. Right? Are they voting to defund you know, ice in the pol- like the, these are real questions that, are, yeah. that need to be asked and asked, and then eventually, hopefully, answered. And they are tricky too, because one of the things that strikes me, and I think, you know, this is where your 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 background and understanding the census and your connection with the with census work really comes in handy, is that these categories are so funky. Yeah. Right? Like, who gets included in Middle Eastern? Yeah. And does Middle Eastern intersect with white? So this yeah. brings up at the national level, Justin Amish for me, right? Like Justin Amish, most people don't know, is a Pal- it comes from Palestinian Christian descent. Mm-hmm. But most people don't identify him as Middle Eastern. Yeah. They don't say, oh, he's a Middle Eastern guy. Is it because he's not yeah. Christian? He's a white guy. So well, no, the race and ethnicity are complicated and messy in these categories. Because... Totally. I'm just speaking, sorry, speaking from experience, I remember when I was a kid and I had to do like those standardized tests for school, right? Right. As a Middle Eastern, I was so confused that like my teachers made me put white on there, right? I always resisted that. I was like Asian or other. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But like, 
they they told me like no you have to put white yeah that's they will you push are. you they will absolutely push you and it's ridiculous because then your problems are invisible because imagine if we had data on yeah. how many middle eastern kids got detention i am sure that kid that especially young boys that are from middle eastern descent were criminalized in the same way that latino men are and that black men are and we don't have that data because you're just mm-hmm. you just got stuff that says white 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 so our your yeah so that's stuff that we really need to figure out in terms of fixing our racial categories all of it's artificial like i wish there was more nuance but right. we're trying to like get like for example Safia Wazir is a state legislator from New Hampshire who's Afghan. And I think at one point, Ali, I almost texted you to be like, do I count her as Middle Eastern or Asian American? (laughs) And I was like, I think he's going to say Middle Eastern. So I threw her in the MENA category. But Afghanistan is this weird country that has geopolitics that connect with the Middle East, but had the music, you know, vibes with stuff from India and Pakistan. So like, what do we do with that? Right. So there's not these neat categories that fit. Right. And this is, this is also why the, why people working at the political science level doing this is crucial because that stuff trickles down to use a random term to stuff like little Diz trying to figure out what what box to tick yeah and it's not just these aren't just abstract categories that are useful for research they have an impact on like who gets counted right and how what we see ourselves exactly yeah. how we see ourselves what a teacher gets to say about us yeah right? oh you're oh you're white just clear yo real no quick one, this other thing before this gets lost in the shuffle you guys i don't know if you caught it but ali gave a shout out to political scientists I was trying to take that win because he is always throwing shade on Poli Sai. He Yo, is. And I fairness, hear you. In fairness, your field is miserable. And my field is pretty abysmal. <laughs> it is. We were, we were just talking before we uh, uh, got started about this article that came out. By Voldemort? Yeah, but just recently by a professor who wrote about uh, an NYU professor who wrote fundamentally about these kind of categories of who is considered Western and who isn't. Now, this isn't new. This goes all the way back to Samuel Huntington, who's technically a sociologist, to be real, right? Like, oh, thank goodness. A, we he's don't... actually a sociologist, even though for whatever reason, poli sci people pick him up more than social yeah, people. Yeah, Fareed Zakaria is all about him. Yeah, I don't know why why that is, but there is something about it. And this, this is where the c- categorization really, really matters, right? Is that for so long. You had these broad-based, quote-unquote, cultural explanations for difference, right? That people were from different cultures and therefore unable to kind of assimilate or fit in. So in this article that caused all this controversy on Twitter and and elsewhere, there was this conversation about, quote-unquote, non-Westerns. Well, non-Westerns are collectivists uh, who simply can't accept the individualistic, rugged individualism of America. But this definition of non-Western includes black people. It's Because black people are, quote-unquote, originally from Africa. Now, think of the logic here, right? That someone who's lived here probably way more generations than this professor has, let's be real, right? Is somehow Mm non-Western. Because somewhere, their family was forcibly, their ancestor was forcibly brought over as a result of slavery but that makes them non-western hispanics who are by literal geographic definition 
fucking western, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, let's be. In fact, the like the very cowboy motif of western is Hispanic, and there are black cowboys too, as we should point out. But mm-hmm. is literally Hispanic, right? So like, yeah. that motif, literally western, but they're considered quote unquote non-western, the non-western mind. So this is why when you when we have actual studies like the what you did with the new american leaders right that breaks down those those stereotypes of western and non-western yeah it breaks down those overly reductive categories and introduces nuance to the conversation and that's that's the difference in my opinion between good political science and shitty political science yeah right like that's where I, like i think that distinction is necessary and also why your work has civic you know ramifications and and impact but also academic ones it's an, it's an intervention into the field of poli-sci itself yeah because when you said reductive the thing that gave me chills at that is the reducing dehumanizes yeah. people and so this individual writing in this us for this them you're dehumanizing groups that are already dehumanized yep. and so by stripping them and putting these stereotypes you're continuing this dehumanization process that justifies this violence that they face yep. whereas what we're trying to do by bringing up the fact that that folks are asian pacific islander or black right. and immigrant is to like add add the vibrancy that they're bringing and show how much more involvement will flourish. We're trying to just instill the basic dignity and like acknowledge the contributions and show how more of it matters. Whereas the reductiveness does the opposite. And so for me, the fact that academics are, we're supposed to be the ones that are so so, uh, quote unquote enlightening others. But But we're sitting here and using our platform to help like build the new fascist regime that we see emerging in the world is wild to me. Well, the this all this all leads to we need more neurons in the yes. field and less of the other kinds. But you are a rare a political scientist, Doctor Sadiq. No, uh, thank you. And it's uh, you know this also raises you know just to ask a, a slightly more personal question: your own involvement. Like, how did you get involved? And then this will be the last too serious question before we we kind of dive into some other interests. But how did you get involved into in political science and kind of how has your journey been? Because one, you're a woman in a predominantly male field. The academy and especially the social sciences, unfortunately, are still very male dominated. You're visibly Muslim. You're a minority. How did you get involved in political science and what was your trajectory? I had amazing black faculty at the University mm. of Michigan in my life. Um, school hated. up north. That, that amazing school up north. Go blue. Uh, Haynes Walton Jr., may he rest in peace. Vince Hutchings. Uh, LaRoe Lewis, who is now a professor at NYU. There was a really great black mentorship. And then Nadine Neighbor, who's now a professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago, there was people there. So I wanted to be a journalist. I was like, I want to be like Christian Amanpour and go into a conflict zone and tell people the stories we're not seeing. And what happened is in 2006, I was not a U.S. citizen. So I was reporting on election stuff for uh, the news, uh, the student newspaper. And I was frustrated because affirmative action as a policy was 
trying to be taken away and a, yeah. a bill passed yeah. and students were upset they're like without this policy we barely have black students on campus they're gonna you know the students that were there were like we're not gonna get support we may drop out and i was like i can't just sit here and report this crap i need to understand where the hell people are voting for such bad policies i need to understand what's going on and i was taking classes with these folks and that made me get interested in the politics and like academic work is journalism with theory yep we're reporting on what's going on with adding a why and i wanted to understand the why and like and i wanted to make interventions that helped communities i didn't think journalists i respect journalists a lot but i didn't think that they could make the interventions necessary whereas i thought when i saw folks like vince hutchings who wrote on racial attitudes i was like they actually write on things and consult and collaborate with community members Mm -hmm that can bring more like visible real world change. And at that point I couldn't vote. I was like, if I can't vote and I'm not a citizen, the least I can do is do something that helps the voters. Right. Wow. Well, talk about, talk about a trajectory. There's, you know, what's really struck me about this too, is like joking about like tech stuff aside, there is actually a lot of tech that goes into this. You have like, I mean, you have this coding background. Yeah. There's, I mean, building a study is not what people think it is. No. Right. Not at all. It's people not a Google it's, search. Yeah. It's not a Google search. It's also sure as hell not always like you just standing there with a clipboard. Right. No. There's a lot of like actual tech. Was this like learning a new language or like this is a, a real skill that has to get developed here. How was that for you? It was, you know, a lot of reorganizing and learning how to work with different databases. Um, I have to give much thanks to Reflective Democracy and Rutgers University's Center for American Women in Politics. They had these databases of state legislators that I that and some of it was like they used data crawl, like data scraping and gathered it. And then shout out to my amazing research assistant from UC San Diego, Sunwoo Kim. So Sunwoo, myself, and some other folks from New American Leaders, we had amazing support from New American Leaders, which is all like a predominantly women of color organization, by the way. We, We sat there, we compiled it, and then we had to like run, like run through and then like dig through the data and then figure out who's white who's not white and then run through like a five-step verification process to understand and code the data so there's a lot of different organization steps at the very basic level just getting all the data into one bank and then re and then cleaning it out that's why it took as long as it did that's why it took a year oh wow yeah, that, that's a level of tech that I can't wrap my head around I'm, I wonder if like social media has also had an impact on the type of work that that political scientists and totally. can do like one uh, in terms of like just putting out the information right yeah one of the cool things is like this is really digestible online right? yeah like, the report is out accessible for everyone yeah people can literally tweet it out but also like in terms of like da- data collection in terms of connect like social media and 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 polling and whatnot all have to have been shaped radically but it's kind of weird moment of Twitter and Facebook mm-hmm. and whatnot, right? Definitely. For survey work, the fact that we can go online and get people to yep. respond to surveys makes such a difference because it's so much more expensive to try to call people because people's people don't have landlines and going door to door is so expensive. Yeah. Um, the only thing is that it represents more of the younger population and with the older population, we have to figure out how to engage them. But and there's also collaboration like you might be working on something in the U.S. 
And then you meet up on academic Twitter with someone in New Zealand working yeah. on something similar. Yeah. So those kind of collaborations are awesome because you're like, oh, my God, you're working on this there. Let's link up. Let's let's collaborate. Let's save each other some time and make magic happen. And that's the cool thing about um, academics getting in on this new tech space as well. Oh, and I, love, I love the idea of an academic Twitter. It cracks me up. Well, luckily for you, you're an Afghan American with social media, so you know how to stalk people properly. Like, Absolutely. <laughs> so, my so grandma you, taught me well. My grandma even knows how to stalk people on social media. Well, that's exactly, impressive. dude. You're over here like checking out their Facebook, seeing who they're friends with. Okay, like yes. they, they, I see a lot of Muslim names on their Facebook. Maybe they're the not FBI's white. Mm-hmm. got nothing on this. Yeah. No, the aunties, the Afghan aunties, they yep. stalk better than the FBI. Yeah, you know what would made this shit a lot easier if we were still in like the MySpace days. Like oh you could go God. on their MySpace page and see like who their top eight was, and if it was a bunch what of like brown people, you didn't have MySpace. No, you didn't have I didn't. Eight? What is oh, top man. eight? That sounds That's dramatic. Cool. We often talk about like how how crazy it is. Like the Gen Z posts this stuff. Like just the other day, I saw boomer a video of a yeah. I know I'm being a very big boomer here of a TikTok of a girl who had broken up with her uh, boyfriend. Oh Ooh. my god! And so she did a video uh, like to the to the girl who gets. Cole, I next. think Cole. Yeah, that's the one. Cole, Ooh. who gets Cole next, and it was like pictures of them together of her and her ex. Like Fly he means well, and it's, like, and it's like it's just one of those like, it's like people on t- TikTok apparently are impervious to cringe or something because like holy that Christ, so it was bad. so cringe. Oh my goodness! But then it like as much as like the boomer in me was just like, good God, that's so embarrassing. But Ooh. then I was like, damn. We grew up with MySpace. We were hella. Em- we were the original emos. Okay. So on MySpace, there was this thing called your friends list, your top ten or your top eight or whatever. Top eight, right? And you, those were like your best friends. You put okay. them in like your circle. But what you could do is you could change the ranking. Yeah. So if you're feeling particularly passive aggressive about Dang. one of your friends, bro, yeah. you could drop they them drop to them number to three. number eight. Yo, oh yeah. Yo, oh. that shit caused so many fights. So, um, I had a relationship during the MySpace days. Oh, right? okay. And um, one of the reasons, so I get it. Was get she a, not your number one? No, nah, she was my number one. <laughs> so check this shit out. So like, I get a text from one of my other friends. They're like, "Yo, did you and uh, you know, what's her face break up?" And I'm like, "No, why?" They're like, well, she took you out of her top eight, and she <laughs> put in this, she put in this other dude. Whoa! I was like, cheating. I was like, yeah, what you. the fuck? You know, MySpace cheating. Had to on call you. the girl like, "Hey, who this dude?" And she's like, "Oh, just you know, some guy like I met this week." I'm like, "Why is he on your top eight? Why am I off your top eight? Blah blah." It turned into a huge fight. It was like the start of the demise of our relationship. Oh my god! Man, all over a top See? eight, man. You we know, were people- the original emo. So as much as I talk, we talk smack about Gen Z and TikTok and. So whatnot. then I have a question. Does yes. is Ali in your top eight? If we had MySpace now, where would he be ranked? I'd better be on top eight. Ali would be my number three on top eight. There we go. Ooh, That's nice. Good. I yeah. accept that. Yeah. Wait a minute, who's number two? Zaid. Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, of course. And yeah. we know who number one is. Yeah, we do. We definitely do. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was the, and also like it's the other true, thing was like MySpace had like this, number one. This, like you could play music when you came onto uh, the person's profile. Mm-hmm. Yep. So people would put on like the most emo fucking shit, My Chemical Romance, and like oh, wow. AFI yes. oh, yeah. stuff that like really like. So like this, this was like the this was cringe before the cringe. Which Bro, is, you're talking like my music, man. AFI, My Chemical Romance. I was just jamming to that shit the other day. Omar called me out on it in our group <laughs> chat. 
deep down you have the soul of an e- of a MySpace emo is what you're trying to say. <laughs> so look, they have. Uh, listen, let's be real here. All right, we all have our guilty pleasures, right? Like we all listen to like some type of like weird music that like like if our friends caught us listening to it, you just be like, oh, how did that get there? For me, two thousands pop punk is my shit. Like. I can listen to 30 Seconds to Mars, Panic at the Disco, Fall Out Boy, Simple Plan, um, uh, Jimmy Eat World. You do know that people are going to hear this. Blink-182. I think 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 you're proud. But this this, this actually is a a great segue because it leads us to to Dr. Sadiq's second area of expertise, Uh which is K-pop. Uh-oh. Now, this is we've been meaning to have this conversation with you for ages, for ages. Because both Diz and I want to kind of get into K-pop, right? We want us to be hip with the kids. I mean, I've never heard some K-pop, but we have like no idea of where to start. Oh yeah. my god! I mean, I know, I know BTS obviously, right? Which you I must. should con- I should confess to say that I literally found out like two months ago that BTS does not stand for boys that sing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little behind of the times. I know Blackpink, right? Uh-huh. So I know a little bit. But where where do we even start with K-pop? I feel like you need to go like a step more old school. Like before okay. BTS, there was a group called BAP. BAP. Uh, their um, their music sounds like BTS's. They don't dance as well as BTS, but Bang on Guk was the front headline singer uh, mm-hmm. of them, and so I feel like that generation is the crossover because I got into K-pop in 2014 spring 2014 when i was finishing my first year in the phd and i needed an escape from coding and from like the ramifications of how racist american politics is so i needed an escape and so that was my escape and um uh, big bang is my favorite group Uh um they're like the in sync of Korea in some ways. Oh shit! Uh, you know that guy Sai um, who did uh, the Gungam stuff. Yes. Yeah. So yes. they're part of his record record label, oh, YG. So YG is like of the very elite record label. So Blackpink is part of YG. Sai is part of YG. Uh, Big Bang is part of YG. The cool thing is like, so I used to fly up to New York for concerts. And I think if you want to go, that's the place to go. And you would go and sit in line and you'd see a bunch of Koreans and then a bunch of young Latinx kids, black Americans and random Muslim kids. Yes. Okay. Can we talk about how, because this is so true right here. The thing that I found out about uh, K-pop fans and that fascinate me, people treat K-pop as if it's Korean people and young white kids. Yeah. It's actually it's, people of color. It totally is. It's black kids, it's Muslim kids, it's Latinx kids. These are the ones that are really yep. into BTS. Because one, Gen Z is way more diverse than, and millennials are way more diverse than any other generation that came before them. And two, they're, they're really, really, truly a global generation. Yeah. And so like when I when people talk about like k-pop fans they don't realize that they're not talking one about a homogenous group of fans exactly they're talking about the uh, they're talking about minorities Mm -hmm. and that's fascinating to me about the way in which you know they are the ones who made k-pop this global phenomenon and particularly in america right Mm -hmm. but that also gives you know some explanatory powers to the way in which k-pop fandoms have over like intersected with black lives matter and digital activism. It has made me so proud to be a right? K-pop no. fan. I'm like, oh yes. They've been on it. Like when they uh, really have. What was it like Detroit 
uh, not Detroit, Dallas police had like this like camera thing where they were, you could send in clips yes. of like the protests going on and they would go through the, like the videos to try to find people. The K-pop stands just started sending in fan cams. Like mm-hmm. so, like mm-hmm. videos of like their favorite artists and whatnot, and like it completely flooded the system. So they had to take down the app because they flooded the app with a whole bunch of like K-pop stuff. It was the best. They've yep. also flooded the uh, the TikTok algorithm, the Twitter algorithm, the Instagram algorithm. So if you type in "All Lives Matter" or "Blue Lives, Lives Matter", Matter. Yep. yeah, or "White Light," yeah, it's all just like K-pop stands that have taken over the hashtags to like mess with these people yeah they completely flooded all those all the racist hashtags in a what can only be described as a perfect example of digital activism yeah right of really leveraging the power of technology and organizing passionately around it i knew they were a force to be reckoned with when they fucked with donald oh my god that was amazing (laughs) i cackled (laughs) so hard They were so, they were, so Donald Trump's ass was bragging, and his campaign manager, they were bragging so much about how many tickets they had reserved for his rally in Oklahoma, right? It was huge, you know, first of all, he planned it on the fucking anniversary of of fucking the Oklahoma race riot, right? Race massacre, we should say. And you're just like, Jesus Christ, this kid, this guy's not, this is not joking. And on Juneteenth, right? Mm-hmm. So you're sitting there going, oh, God, this guy. Eventually, they admit they have their rally. Turns out, not even a fraction of the people that supposedly reserved showed up. And it turns out that it was because the K-pop fans had basically, K-pop and TikTok came together. And they were, they were stuck in there. I love it. And they just reserved all these spots messing with their numbers, their data, which is phenomenal because not only does it mess with their 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 reservations, but that's also where they get uh, data to email people from. Yeah. Right. So those those roles are very important. They have to basically throw all that out and start fresh. And that's all thanks to TikTok. The Trump campaign is the worst. So like. I saw that shit on TikTok, so I reserved, like, a bunch of tickets to, like, one of his last rallies. You're a mess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you but, are a mess. But I've been getting... I love it. I've literally been getting six to seven emails a day from the Trump campaign. Ooh. Like, why, have, yeah, why haven't you donated? I'm disappointed in you, Mr. David Warnsby. Because I said that's what my name was. I wanted to make it as, <laughs> as non... You know, David non- Warnsby? <laughs> yeah. It sounds like that Islamic singer, Dawood Warnsby. That's what I called Dawood. I called him Dawood <laughs> Warnsby. <laughs> It's amazing. So that, that's where I got the name from, right? So uh, I get like, David, you're. I'm disappointed to see that you haven't donated. And then they keep like sending me things like surveys, like who would you rather run this country, a Republican or a MS-13 loving Democrat? And I'm always signing like the MS-13 loving Democrat. <laughs> it's like their their surveys are the worst, man. They really are. They're, well, I mean, they're not being run by. The data scientists, political scientists, right? They're being run by dumbasses. But that's one of the reasons why K-pop was able to mess with them so well. When, like, setting the politics aside for just a moment, too, it's like, can we just marvel at the fact that I've been, I've watched a couple of these videos uh, uh, of these K-pop artists, and I know that like the anti-capitalist in me would, should hate them, right? Because they are super produced, right? Hyper capitalistic music industry. It's also like a, you know, a little awkward there. The way they kind of exploit these really young, but in terms of like just like fucking skills, 
they blow they blow any artists I've seen in in the contemporary moment. They're so good. I mean, they're they're singing, they're dancing, the choreography. You're wa- I'm watching that choreography and going, these guys are these guys are yeah, machines. They dance so well. Like they, um, one of my favorites is Jay Park. Um, yeah, he's from Seattle. I mean, like the thing is, like they take that discipline. Like, yeah. These like they're the YG and these labels. They have them like in these dance camps at the age of 12 prepping to become idols oh jesus and i think there's some of it can be like a little too much but like they're expected to be able to do all of these things so they've taken what is like artistic and like kind of boiled it into a science for some of these groups um so some of like that some of the limitations of k-pop is that i feel like some of these um pop stars do get abused where they're yeah. overworked and expected to be perfect in doing some of this because they're trying yeah. to build this into like this perfect formula but um jay park like left that label world and is, has his own and he works with um jay-z's label mm, mm. um so but his dancing is like my favorite you guys have to check it out we're and, definitely gonna be looking yeah. at all of these i mean the 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 skill is is really on another level yeah and it is super, super impressive and i, I think that's it. part of also the success too right it's like one of the things that makes k-pop possible is the fact that the technology has become so global right yeah they really emerged in that youtube moment like yeah 2000 post 2018 would end and 2010 when youtube kind of peaked right yeah and it's because you could watch them yeah right and of course now on spotify and whatnot you can get the albums but it is that the visual component of k-pop is significant right absolutely it's not, the music is great it's really good but it's that watching them like the choreography the the performance the style uh, you know like it's just amazing. recently they were doing the whole uh, street fashion of korea and china and japan Ooh. right on tiktok these these like young teens were walking down the street like mini almost fashion shows huh. and just the street yeah. fashion is just like on another like level street of fashion, creative oh my god it's yeah. incredible well, it's, there's korea there's japan and china the three f- street fashions and you just kind of go oh my god yeah impressive on like an entirely new level Absolutely. so that visual component plays a big, big role all right one final question and then we'll call it a night because this it's been a fun conversation uh, and we could go for hours but we don't want to keep you any further what do you what song or what do you listen to or watch right now that brings you joy that you can just vibe to that we're going to listen to after this that we can vibe to what is something a k-pop that you just song vibe to? could be a k-pop song it could be anything what helps you find your joy in I mean, these crazy times i mean i have like different lists but with k-pop big bang their big album bang. made is really good big bang um made. And then their song Blue was a little moody. I'm feeling my blues. But sometimes you feel moody during COVID. Sometimes you have to, yeah. Um, yeah, that's really what's getting me through is K-pop stuff. And then honestly, I've been listening to a lot of Afrobeats, like Burna Boy. Mm. Um, so I'm really interested in like like this crossover world of like, you know, Afro, you know, like how they all mix together. And so for yeah. me... Um, that's been another really interesting one piece is like how, um, you know, when Drake steals it and calls it his own, but these people have been doing it before Drake, they'll do it after Drake. Um, <laughs> but I did you. send you guys the link of Drake rapping in Arabic, which was I did. hilarious. I saw that and I just like, it was like the too much validation for the Arabs. They needed to <laughs> step it down a yeah. notch. Hey, my hey, big, hey, I've brother. told y'all, I told y'all. <laughs> 
my brother was hyped though, yo. He said, he "Like said, this is Yosef." Yeah, he says, "I look like Yosef Hamza." You look Hamza, I look like Yosef. I was, yeah. They said a couple, a couple Arabic words and a couple names, and people got like, went straight I'm, to their heads. It yeah. did. I, I did bring me a little bit of joy, because Diz <laughs> is always kicking me out of group chats for advocating for Arabs. So no, 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 stop. First off, don't don't misrepresent why I kick you out of group chats. All right, I'm, I kick you out of group chats because you have the audacity to say. That Arabic food is better than Afghan food. And I'm damn near about to kick you off this podcast because oh, you, right, you, right, you right, triggered right. me. Let's, let's, end this on, let's end this on a positive note. Uh, this was an entirely selfish question in regards to, to, to what brings you joy because I'm pretty sure currently nerdy fans know plenty about K-pop. I don't know shit. So it was just me writing down stuff that I'm going to be listening to after this podcast. I would be curious but, what currently nerdy fans are listening to. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious too. I do think there's a there's an intersection of, of some of them that listen to K-pop without a doubt. They're, no. they're children of the internet. You can't 100%. be a children of the internet and not listen yeah. to K-pop. Noosh, what are you right? listening to, bro? Yeah, let us know. Uh, this was an absolutely phenomenal podcast. Thank you so much, Nora, for joining us. Uh, it was a long time coming. It was such a, f- a blast chatting with you. Likewise, and about your work. I feel so cool now. Um, and and definitely, we hope to have you back and yep. and learn more from you. So with that, uh, Diz, why don't you take us out? Yes, you can send us your K-pop recommendations via Facebook, Facebook.com/slash Currently Nerdy, Twitter at Currently Nerdy, Instagram at Currently Nerdy, Tumblr Currently Nerdy. Tumblr.com. Uh, we're on Stitcher, Google Play, and the iTunes podcast app. Make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. Five star ratings, please. Write something nice. Tell us how you, the guest hosts have been wonderful and. You know, write all that stuff. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us individually, you can. First, we'll let uh, Nora, if you have any of your stuff you want to shout out. Sure. My Twitter handle is political underscore nerd, N-U-R-D. And then my Instagram is Nora PhD. Or you can contact me on my website, norasadiq.com. You can catch me online at A-A-O-L-O-M-I or on our sister podcast, Head on History. Diz. You can find me everywhere on the World Wide Webs at Dizbola, D-I-Z-B-U-L-L-A-H, and on our brother podcast, Currently Nerdy Sports. Get your fantasy football fix for last year because we don't know if there's going to be a fantasy football season this year, but it's on (laughs) SoundCloud.com slash Currently Nerdy. (laughs) Let's be real. For everyone here at Currently Nerdy, thank you for tuning in, and remember, stay smart, sexy nerds. All hail the Currently Nerdy empire.